and welcome to Start Right Here, a podcast where we discuss breaking in, standing out, and the path to success in the beauty industry. I'm your host, Corinne Corbett, and I hope the conversations I have with my guests inspire you to forge a path of your own. Let's get started. Hello, everybody. Today, I want to talk with my guest and you about Black hairstylists, because if you think about it, the first Black woman is being nominated for Academy Award this year. Can you imagine? It has taken until 2021 to nominate a Black woman for her work in hair. Think about that. As many dope hairstylists who have been working behind the scenes have toiled Their work has almost gone unnoticed. So part of today's discussion is about recognizing the ingenuity, the genius, the beauty of what Black hairstylists do, not only on the screen, but with us in the salon and in their careers overall. Today, my guest is Mickey Wright, who is a salon business coach and host of the Beauty Superstars Talk podcast. And we're going to talk about her career journey as well as why it is important to value and elevate the work of Black hairstylists. Welcome, Mickey. Well, thank you so much, Corinne. I'm super excited to be here. (laughs) So, Mickey, can you give us a brief bio? I think I can. I'm actually a beauty entrepreneur. I've been an award-winning hair designer for more than three decades, an educator. I was one of the first African-American owners of a full-service salon and day spa in the country. And with that team, we were blessed to be part of the Salon Today 200, which ranks the 200 fastest growing salons in the country for three consecutive years. And in addition to that, I've been helping hairstylists and owners to be able to get more clients, make more money, excel in hiring and leadership, and grow successful businesses. And currently, I'm the host and founder of the Beauty Superstars Talk podcast, where I get to interview weekly Black beauty bosses who are doing wonderful things and excelling in the beauty industry. Your work in beauty, was it a destination or a detour? I think my answer is that it was a destiny. I grew up around the industry, but I never thought about going into it. I was always really into fashion and I just kind of actually fell into it. And then when I fell into it, I fell in love with it. And I've gotten in and out of it a couple different times and it always calls me back. So it just feels like this is where I was supposed to be. I can relate to being in and out of beauty because I had many stints in and out of beauty throughout my career. So I understand exactly what you're talking about. Let's talk about your first job. What was it and how did you go about getting it? I worked at Burger King and I worked there because I wanted to start working my family always encouraged working and you could get certain things for yourself if you worked. And there were things that I wanted that my parents were like, we're not getting that. So <laughs> you're going to have to go to work. So it was always kind of exciting to me. And they were one of the few places that would hire you at 14. And so I started my career at Burger King and loved it, actually. What do you think you learned there that has stayed with you since your teenage years? Well, definitely work ethic, you know, showing up when you're scheduled and being there, being present, being receptive, you know, teachable. I remember early on, it's like my family was going on vacation and my manager was like, oh, your family's going on vacation. You now have a job. 
And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I do. <laughs> so I didn't go on vacation. I went to my job. Wow. I can relate to that. <laughs> I can understand that. But that's a hard lesson as a teenager. Definitely a hard lesson. What was the first job you had out of school? I worked actually as an assistant when I was in school. I saw a woman on stage. Um, they had the NCA at that point, the National Cosmetology Association. They would have monthly meetings and have someone go and demo. And she was phenomenal. Betty Jo Williams King in Houston. And when I saw her combing hair, I was like, oh, my goodness, I want to work with her. And so that was actually my first job. But I was actually still in school when I worked with her. And let's back up. What made you go? Because you said you fell into beauty. What made you go to cosmetology school? Oh, it's really an interesting story. You know, my whole life really is like I worked full time and I went to school part time to college. And when I was working, one of my colleagues was like, oh, I like the way you keep your hair. Do you think you could do my daughter's hair? And I said, well, I probably could. And so I did a relaxer and trimmed their hair and curled it and all of that. And there were two daughters. But her husband was one of those types of people who never likes anything. And when I finished, he was like, oh, my God, that's a precision cut. You should just quit your job and do hair. And I was like, what? <laughs> it was like completely out of the blue. And I talked to my mom, you know, who's in the business as well. And she's like, well, definitely don't quit your job. <laughs> You're not coming back. But go to cosmetology school, see if you even like it, and then kind of proceed from there. And once I got into school, it was on. What kind of work did you leave behind? What were you doing? I guess originally I was majoring in college for computer science. Big difference. Yeah, <laughs> quite a bit. And I worked in a medical center in Houston, Texas. So it's like I'm originally from Detroit, but I was living in the Houston area, going to U of H. And I worked in the medical center as an administrative assistant. I temped a lot. And so I got the job as a temp and I was a receptionist in the dermatology department. So I learned a lot about skin and the patients and doctors and different terminology and that type of thing. And then I got promoted. And so I worked with the same group, but I did a lot of the typing up of different papers. The doctor that was over our department was very well known with places like JAMA, the Journal of Medical Association. And so I would do all the typing up of the things that he had written. So that was what I left behind. When you went to beauty school, did you fall in love with the profession right away? I loved a lot of the things about it. You know, it was really fun. I guess I had more talent than I thought, you know, had picked up more things from my mom than I thought. And so in some ways it was kind of easy. And in some ways, like learning finger waves, I couldn't get them until I was like ready to throw my mannequin up against the wall. <laughs> and then somehow they started going into place. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> So there were lots of lessons. It was definitely a different type of atmosphere, I guess you could say. But yeah, once I got into it, I really did fall in love with it. You've worked in salon as well as a platform artist and an educator. What was it like working in a salon after you finished school and you decided to do this full time? Well, I left Houston. I knew I wanted to start my career in Washington, D.C. area. I had lived there briefly and there were lots of really great things going on in that area. So I actually took my test one day and I moved to D.C. the next day. <laughs> wow. OK. <laughs> I said it was a good thing I passed my test because I couldn't have gone back to take it again. 
I wanted to take my time and find the salon that I wanted to work in because I knew that I wanted to be a salon owner and I wanted someone to help groom me. I knew I wasn't ready and I knew my mom was there, but not in the same area, same town. And so I worked temp again when I relocated and took my time and I kept interviewing at different places. I would stop people on the street and, you know, who did your hair and try to find the salons. And so I met with a lot of people and a lot of them kept saying, well, I got my start with Sali. And I was like, who is Sali? How do you spell it? You know, <laughs> it's like, what is this? And so I finally found Sali's hair studio. Um, if anybody's familiar with the DC area on Upper Georgia Avenue. And when I walked in, it was just like immediately like, I'm going to work here. I haven't met the owner yet. He doesn't know it yet, but I'm going to work here. So <laughs> there was a returning stylist who um, was rebuilding her clientele. She had worked there before and she was going to need an assistant. So I called like every week, if not more, you know, are you ready? Is she ready? And, you know, she wasn't ready. She wasn't ready. And then he called me one day and said, we have a chair available. Would you like to take it? And so I was like, sure. No clients, no family, no friends, no nobody <laughs> to get started. But I was like, sure, I'll take a chair. Anyway, my first six months were pretty rough because I really did not build up fast enough. I ended up having a job that was part-time temp. And so when I was doing that, I'd do it early in the morning and then I'd come in for most of the day at the salon. And so that worked out well. But when that job ended, I was getting behind on everything, you know, all my bills and car, you know, they were sending me notices. We're going to come pick it up. It's like, we got the note on the door when I get home from work. And it's like, oh my gosh. So I really felt like I just had to get, you know, a real job, go back to the office. And I did that, but he gave me the option to come in and work evenings and weekends, which was something that had not crossed my mind. It was just like, I have to give up my dream and go pay my bills. But he gave me that opportunity and I figured, okay, it'll take me about a year or so to get back to the salon. And in reality, it took about six months. What happened in that six months that helped you build your clientele? Well, one thing was the book, Think and Grow Rich. That was something I was reading at the time. And it's a really classic and, you know, I did my work, but any free moments I had, I was thinking, how many clients do I need? What services would they need to get done? What days, hours, what kind of people did I want? And I was always really willing to work. It's like I knew everybody's name in the salon because I assisted every stylist that needed help. And anybody was like, okay, hi, Miss Jones. Hi, Miss Smith. So I really was ambitious and excited about it. And when I kind of combine just like focus, it's like, this is what I want. And, you know, it's like it's a little story. If we have time, I can share about when I decided to go into the salon because I worked for, I guess, a company or so for a while and that was fine. And then that position ended like right before Good Friday and Good Friday and the salon was really the busiest day of the year, basically. Everybody got their hair done for Easter, and I knew I was going to be in the salon that day, period. So anyway, the job ended that Thursday, so I was in the salon Friday and Saturday, and then I started a new job on Monday. And I don't know who's worked in an office before, but usually, you know, it's like, oh, here's the coffee, here's this, you know, we'll get you settled in or whatever. This was like the most boring office I had ever been in. <laughs> Here's your cube, sit down, type this, do this, whatever. No friendliness, no warm greetings, no socializing, nothing. And I was like, okay, I'm bored, completely out of my mind. 
And, you know, I'm still calculating, I'm still writing things down and I'm looking at what am I going to make this week? And when I totaled it up, I realized that I had made more that Friday in the salon than I was going to make all week being bored, not to even mention Saturday. So I was like, I'm done. This is my last week doing this. (laughs) Oh, that makes sense. But I like that you sat down and figured out what you needed financially, as opposed to I'm bored, I'm out. It's I'm bored. Can I afford to leave this job behind? And also, I have a lot of respect for the fact that you took the chair, but then realized, okay, I don't have a clientele. I can't afford this either. So let me go back to work. Like, this is premature. Yeah. A lot of people, and it's not just hairstylists, it's a lot of us will take a leap before we're ready. And I just got to say, I admire the fact that you're like, I took this leap. I'm not ready. Let me just get ready and come back. Yeah. A lot of my early decisions had to do with youth and just (laughs) pure excitement. (laughs) And not much sense in the way of like, okay, let's logically look at this. Even my move across country, my stopping point was Atlanta. So that was from Houston driving about 14 hours, I think. And I was pretty exhausted by the time I got there. And my mom says, well, why don't you just stay there, you know, like two days instead of overnight? And so I'm like, oh, no, no, I have to get to D.C. I have no place to live. I have no job waiting there. I have nothing waiting there. But I was like, nope, I got to go, you know. (laughs) Exuberance, as you said, youthful exuberance. (laughs) So how did entrepreneurship come into play for you? Was it something you always thought about? Yeah, I guess so. In a lot of ways, it's like my mom is very entrepreneurial. I have a lot of family members who are very entrepreneurial. And even when I worked at Burger King, she would ask me, it's like, could you see yourself managing one or owning one? In fact, that was part of how I got into computer science. I was good with math and all of that as well. You know, we had cash registers, you know, they're a little less high tech than they are now, but there was a computer repair guy that came in to repair one of them. And he would just go from this place to that place to the other place. And so he worked relatively independently from what I could tell. And I was like, I think I would like something like that, you know, where you kind of get some freedom and you're out and about a little bit and can do something that you enjoy. I always thought about it in certain ways, but not specifically like, oh, when I grow up, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. How long did you work in a salon before you created your own place? Well, the first salon, you know, where I had all the struggles and everything, I was there for about two years altogether. And then I relocated to another salon, the Kelly Harem, which was also another great experience. And I was there about a year. So about three years in was when I decided to open my first salon, which was separate from the salon I did later that turned into the Salon and Day Spa. Start Right Here is brought to you by Beauty Biz Camp, where we equip and inspire the next generation of industry leaders. Head over to our website, beautybizcamp.com, for more information and sign up for our mailing list so you can stay in the know about our upcoming programming. What did you learn at that first experience at the first salon about being your own boss? The first Six months, like I said, I wasn't building. I had a lot of self-doubt. And so it was really about the mentorship. My salon owner was very kind and patient. And his receptionist, Judith, she was a great support. So it's like I said, I spent half of it in tears. You know, like, how do I do this? How do I figure this out? And so 
learning as far as being your own boss, I learned a lot from his example. And I think that was why 10 of the top salons in the area had come from working with him. And so Tuesday morning at 9 a.m., you could set your watch. He was out front sweeping the front stoop, getting everything ready. There were fresh flowers on the front desk. Everything was in order. He took care of the numbers, always had a receptionist. It was a booth rental salon, but it was never any question whose salon it was. It wasn't a free-for-all by any means. It was really just very well run. And when I came in that first night, it was like the brick on the wall on the side And there was jazz music playing, and it was just like this really great ambiance. It was really busy, really professional people. And so I just learned a lot by his example and how he ran things, as well as my mom. It's like she was a great influence. Tell me about your decision to open a full-service salon and day spa. Why did you think you needed to do that, or why did you want to do that? (laughs) Well, it's a really good question. And I think a lot of people like you were talking about earlier, kind of jump into things before they're ready or what have you. So I had a smaller salon. Actually, when I opened my second salon, my first salon, I'll just share. I planned to be there for forever. And I got made an offer. Someone wanted to buy it. And I was like, no, I don't want to sell. And I kept upping it. And it was just like, okay, I'm at the point of it's an offer. I can't refuse. I'm going to sell the salon. Fast forward to a few years later, I was educating, so I was on the road, not quite every weekend, but almost, and I had videos of educational stuff. I taught hairstyling. I had my own fabulous finishes system, which was a systematic approach to hair design, and so people would purchase videos by mail and at the classes, and so after I worked all day in the salon, I would go home and address (laughs) all of these orders and stuff to get those out. And so I figured if I had my own small space, I could hire the receptionist to take care of that. And at least I could go home at night. And so that was what I did. And it was myself and my assistant who was just about to get her license. And with that particular space, it's like we just quickly outgrew it. It's like there was this person that said, oh, I want to work with you. Oh, I want to work with you. And we literally had like a stand, you know, those little roller cart kind of thing. That was one of the stylist stations on Saturday that was next to the shampoo bowl. I mean, it was just, we, we really outgrew the space and it was great. It was like, we loved servicing our clients and the clients loved being there. And so looking toward like, okay, we're going to have to make some decisions, whether we remodel or expand or whatever, relocate. There's a crazy story with the space. But anyway, (laughs) we ended up doing a lot of surveys with our clients, taking them through like a paper survey while they were getting service. Once we kind of got a response, like, would this be something you'd be interested in? And a lot of our clients, maybe not a lot, but a good portion of them had actually been to spas, like where you stay for the week and they take care of everything. And the thought of having a day spa in the area seemed appealing to them. And we did a small group where we took them, you know, some of our top clients and did an event, you know, a little food and drinks and that thing to really have like some honest conversation about what they were looking for and all of those types of things, what they'd be willing to spend and really made sure that it was a good move because I hesitated to put my name on another lease that was a bigger lease and have the responsibility that went with everything. And so it was very cautiously and very much spirit-led that led us to that particular decision. So that's the short version. (laughs) I hear focus groups with the group that you sit down with. I hear quantitative surveys. 
you did a lot of market research. So quantitative and qualitative, because a lot of times you ask somebody, I'm thinking about doing this, would you be a customer? And they say yes, fully knowing that they won't be. But I think taking those extra steps though, and having some really quality conversations about what the customer's comfort level was with service was critically important in order to kind of get to the point that you would want to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And we were good at marketing. It's like we always had a lot of marketing and attracting new clients. So it's like I felt comfortable from that standpoint. But if we didn't have a base to support us, that that might be a really challenging big nut to swallow. So So I definitely say approach it cautiously. Because there's services that you weren't as familiar with. Right. And to tell you and the listeners, it's two different businesses. They're just under the same house. But hairstylists are totally different than people who are estheticians and massage therapists. And we offer quite a few services, but those were our main and the nail techs. And so it's a whole different business than the hair side. And so kind of learning each. Definitely, I took classes to learn how to run a spa and those types of things. What do you think made you an award-winning salon and spa? Definitely the commitment of everybody on our team. We had a really, really great team. And I would say that I'm probably a demanding boss, but we had fun. The expectation is that we're there to work. We're there to take care of our clients and I guess have like a teaching spirit. And so it was important to me that each person that came in really got grounded in what they needed to do to take care of the clients. Because we sometimes just say, oh, we need to provide customer service. But most people don't know what that is. And especially even when we went into the spa, as I said, some of our clients had been to full service spas, not a day spa, but a spa. And none of our team had been to even a day spa. And so we arranged one of our team meetings. It was a surprise, but we did a limo and we took our team to one of the top spas in the area to get many services so they could see, you know, how did they greet us and what were the services like? What was the ambiance of the place like and all those types of things so they could actually see firsthand what we were planning to offer. What made you decide to stop doing that business and go back to a corporate job? You started working at Ulta. What precipitated that shift, that pivot? Well, there were actually quite a few years in between the two. But yeah, with selling the salon, it actually was an interview that I did with the Washington Post. I met with a lady in my office the writer of the story and was just talking about the salon, you know, it's like our tagline was pampering is a necessity, not a luxury. And we were just talking about the spa and the different services we provide and why we provide them, you know, that black women need a place to relax and really unwind and deserve that type of treatment. And all the while I was talking, it was just like I was looking outside of my body (laughs) at myself and I was like, but you're the most stressed out person right now. (laughs) trying to make sure that everybody else is taken care of. And so I was like, "Woo, I have to think about this. And so I was like, okay, let me look at how far along do I have for my lease and would I renew the lease? And I was like, no, I don't think I'm going to renew the lease when it comes time. And then it's like, it was about maybe a year and a half out from that time frame. And I was like, do I want to spend the next year and a half doing what I'm doing now? And I was like, no, I don't think I do. 
And so some of my decisions are kind of short and quick. And so it was making arrangements and that type of thing. I really wanted to keep my team together. Everybody worked very well together and had grown and, you know, it was a great environment. And the decision was made then, but the process took a little bit longer, obviously, to try to put things in place. You said there were a number of years between closing the day spot and then starting to work for Ulta in a couple of roles. So what did you do in between? When I left the spa, when I sold slash closed it, I did hair and I didn't really realize, but I was like in a little bit of a depression. And it was like at the end of the year, when I looked at what I made that I was like, oh gosh, I think I was (laughs) off track there. And anytime anybody like canceled or they're like, you don't have, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll go home. And prior to that, it'd be like, oh yeah, well, let me call Miss so-and-so she can get in. And, you know, it's like, we'd be making all kinds of arrangements and stuff, but I was just like, whatever. So anyway, I had wanted to kind of get out of the industry for a little while. And a friend of mine was wanting the same thing and he found a mortgage company and we started doing mortgage loans. So I learned how to do that. And that led me into some real estate investing. I stayed with that for quite a while and relocated. I wanted to get out of the D.C. area, which I said was a really great fit at 20, but not as good a fit at 40. (laughs) And so I relocated and it was actually some years after that when I went to Alta. What do you think the difference when you went back to sort of a corporate job, Alta, after being an entrepreneur? Was it a relief? I mean, because you had been responsible for so much. What were the differences? Well, there's, I think, quite a few differences. It's like I liked working with Alton. You know, sometimes it depends on where you are and the people that are part of your team. And I felt like I had a lot of support, which was great, and really good leaders that I worked with to be able to do what I needed to do in terms of even learning the position. And it's like introductions and that type of thing, I think, went really smoothly because of the way that everything was handled. So it was really good. It was fun working with a team again, growing a team again. And it's like we had some really great growth as well. And it was kind of during the recession time. And we were able to be Club of Excellence, which was one of the top 20 salons in the company, as well as our district was Club of Excellence and our store. So we had some really good success and really good team. And I liked being able to focus a little bit more on one thing versus everything. What made you transition into coaching small business owners and salon owners? Yeah, well, I actually started that before I went to Ulta. It's a little crazy, but it's like I had gotten out of the industry and everything. And then I was kind of like, okay, I feel like maybe I'm supposed to go back in. I'm not sure what's going on. But anyway, I got an award from the Bronner Brothers organization, a legend award. And it was about five years after I had left the industry completely. I hadn't been doing teaching and educating on stage, anything. And it was just like kind of wild, like, wow, they remember me from five years ago. Like who remembers anybody from five years ago? And so it was really felt very humbling and like, okay, it's like, what do I need to do? And what problems do I see right now? Because before people were having trouble with their styling and there wasn't really anybody teaching, you know, it's like you get the cut, but then you style it the same way and it looked old. But when I went back, I was like, I don't really want to do the hair part, but I was like, people aren't building their clientele. They're not knowing, you know, how to do this in a system, you know, how to put some of the systems they need in place or even that they're in business. And so that was how I started the business coaching because I saw a need for it. 
do you talk to or help people early career, mid-career, seasoned, or is it all of the above? Well, when I first started, it more was people earlier in their career trying to build their clientele or people who had been in it a while, but they still hadn't built like that solid, you know, I've been teaching for years and I ask rooms all the time, you know, it's like, how many of you know how much you're going to make next month? And there's very few hands that go up and it's like, well, I hope, I think, you know, and so I help people to get that consistent income so they can make projections and be able to pay their bills and stay in the industry. (laughs) Do you help people deal with their time management skills? Because, you know, one of the biggest complaint is spending all day in the salon. Yep. I knew where you were heading. (laughs) Yes. Time management is absolutely critical, but it's not something that's really taught. You know, it's definitely not taught in cosmetology school. And I think some of it even comes from like a lack a fear of I'm not going to make enough. I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. So come in, come in, come in. And they don't have any system when they come in. It's like we never had anybody waiting for any long period of time. You know, you might run behind occasionally, but not something, you know, where everybody comes in at eight in the morning and you get everybody shampooed and they sit there all day. Like, no. (laughs) So, yeah, that is one of the things that we talked about. It's like getting people in and out. And it's actually even working with a timer is one of the things that I have people do, because most people don't know how long it takes them to do a service. It's like, I think it should take me an hour, but in reality, it takes you an hour and a half. You're going to be behind all day if you book that way. So I'm at an hour and a half. And so how do I speed it up? So maybe it is an hour. But if I'm at an hour and a half, I need to book based on an hour and a half until I get my speed up faster. Tell me a little bit about the reason you started the Beauty Superstars Talk podcast series. (laughs) Well, that was actually born out of the George Floyd murder, you know, very tragic and just personally I felt in a way like I had never felt before. I was like super mad and super sad all at the same time and really kind of didn't have anything to say. Like no words were really coming to mind to even talk about anything. And after that, the whole racial thing erupted in the country. And not long after it erupted in the beauty industry. And during that time, I was actually on a couple of Zoom calls with other top black stylists, artists, entrepreneurs in the beauty industry. And some people I knew, some people I didn't, but everyone kind of got a chance to introduce themselves, share their stories and what have you, and experiences that they'd had with racism or discrimination in the industry. And of course, some were more harsh than others. What I left with was just super inspired. I was just super inspired. And I was like, these people are amazing. It's like these stories have to be told. And so I was like, my platform has to transform to accommodate hearing these stories and getting these stories out here because I know a lot of people and I've been in the industry a long time and I know some great people, but I don't always know their stories. You know, how did they get started and that type of thing. And so that's what it's been. It's like I was actually doing a project with um, Ted Gibson For anyone who doesn't know, he is the highest paid hair cutter in the country, and he is a black man. And we were working on a project together during that time prior to George Floyd's murder. And we were both kind of feeling the same way. So I was like, we need to take this conversation to other people in the industry so they can see it, so they can hear what we're thinking, what we're seeing and what have you. 
And that's what we did. And so he was my first guest. And I skipped a week because I didn't know that it was going to just keep going. At that particular point, I had a thought about it. But when I did it, I just felt extremely comfortable doing the interview. And I was like, this feels like home. This feels like where I'm supposed to be. And it feels like all of the things that I've done in my career have led up to me being like the perfect person to have these conversations in this way with all of these people that I know and that I'm seeing and meeting and the list, it keeps growing every day. I'm meeting new people like you, Corinne. <laughs> and I'm just like, yes, you know, I feel like there's only one of me and I have all these stories I want to get out and share. What's great about it is that you're documenting like the excellence, the black excellence that exists within the hair industry. I would love for you to share the names of some of the other people that you've interviewed or had conversations with on your podcast. Sure. I guess I can start with some of the legends. So John Atchison, Floyd Kenyatta, Barry Fletcher, Patrick Bradley, Thomas Hayden, Barbara Edmonds, Bernetta, Ashley, Jessica Kidd. She was one of my early guests and she started the Black Colorist Matter prior to all of the things that had happened. And I love the way that she curated her page. And so we just started a conversation. And in January, I did four under 40. And that's when I met with Bernetta Ashley and I met with Marjorie Lightford, Brenton Lee and Jasmine Black. And they're all, I guess, early thirties. And they've just already done some phenomenal things. And it just makes me know that the future is very bright for our industry with leaders like them that are coming up the ranks. That's fantastic. As I mentioned earlier, so documenting all this excellence, why do we need to do this? Why did you feel compelled to do this? Actually, I think I was just having a conversation recently. Our culture tells us that our history doesn't matter. It tells us that we didn't really do anything anyway. It tells us that there's nothing to celebrate. You're deadbeats, you're this, you're that, whatever. And I think it's important that we know who came before us, the greatness and the excellence that was already there and that we learn from that excellence, actually, as, as Black people, we keep reinventing the wheel each generation. It's like, oh, I'm the first person to try to do this. But it's like, no, let's take a step back and see how could I do this better, easier, faster. And that was one of the reasons I wanted a mentor, you know, with opening a salon. I felt like if someone's already bumped their head, then I don't have to bump my head. I can go meet with them and find out what they know. And a lot of the legends is like I've had the opportunity to work with. It's like they were people that I completely looked up to and I had the opportunity to learn with them, learn from them and grow with them and then be on stage with them and then do classes and that type of thing. And so I think it's important that we create this excellence, that we know that it's possible, that we know that it exists and that we continue to share it because we can all point to examples of things that aren't working well. But let's take a look at what is. I couldn't agree more with you about acknowledging who came before. Actually, before I came up with the idea for this podcast, I had another idea, which I'm not going to do. So if somebody wants to do it, I'm fine. Take the idea. It's called Follow the Leader because it would look at Black creatives and beauty and the people who inspired them before. You might interview somebody that's just starting out, but they would tell you about the person before them and that person would tell you about the person before them. It made me think of like Janet Zaytoon and Fran Cooper and Craig Gatson. 
Jamaica people who were pre-Instagram, pre-internet that were Black excellence. And I worked at L and I worked a lot with these people and they were great. And there's not enough opportunity to like know their story. So I applaud that. I'm so happy that you're doing this. So tell us about where someone could look at Beauty Superstars, first of all. You can visit my website, which is beautysuperstars.com. We actually have it set up. It's relatively new, so I'm super excited about it. But you can actually watch the interviews on there, and you can also listen to the interviews on there as well on the actual podcast. All of the videos are on youtube.com and Mickey Wright is my page and it's just 1K, just M-I-K-I-W-R-I-G-H-T. And with the podcast, you can listen on Apple, Spotify, whatever your favorite place is. We're probably there. Just look for Beauty Superstars Talk. What do you think the future holds for Beauty Superstars? What are your hopes for it as well as your overall platform? Yeah, well, for Beauty Superstars Talk, there's so many people that I want to interview. As I say, it's like I've got about five years worth of people that I love to have these interviews with. It's like I also want to do some topic-based conversations as well. So we can talk about various topics with a small group of people. And especially as we open back up, it's like I would love to do some of those in person at some of the trade shows. I'm looking at doing some t-shirts and kind of merch um, with some of the kind of empowering things on them. And I did a tribute during Black History Month for I Am Black Hair History. So doing some things with some of the research and everything that I did just to make that more available. So we're still in the process of kind of sorting out how that can be accessible all the time. And letting people know that's the main thing is just letting people hear these stories because they truly are amazing. One of the things that I mentioned earlier is that two Black women have been nominated for an Academy Award in hair, and it is the first time in 2021, which is kind of unbelievable. And I just want to shout them out. It's Mia Neal and Jamika Wilson, who worked on Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. But there have been so many other people who have done great hair. Can you tell us about some of them? Well, I only know a few people who are like really heavy duty in the film industry. One was Charles Gregory, and I think he was on a short list for a possible nomination this year, and it looks like he didn't make it. But Charles Gregory was a phenomenal hairstylist. He was artistic director for Soft Sheen for quite a few years a while back. It's like he's been an educator with Bronner Brothers and kind of across the board. And I actually had the chance to interview him a couple of times. And one of the things that was really striking and he was actually um, head of Tyler Perry Studios as well. So he did Medea's hair and all of that for several years as well. When we met, you know, when we were talking, he's like quoting different parts out of the Milady cosmetology book, like quoting just off the top of his head. He's like, yeah, I'm always in my book. I'm always studying. We talked about prepping wigs and working on your mannequin and how you go in and, you know, make these presentations for the producers of what the vision will be for the hair. And it's just really impressive because I think sometimes we get it backwards where we think, oh, yeah, well, if I was Tyler Perry's department head for hair, then, you know, I would be studying, too. But it's like, nope, he's in that position because he studied and he got into film and television and he really spent a lot of time opening the doors for other artists, other black artists to be able to learn what they needed to know and open the doors for more opportunities for black artists. 
And there's a lady that I actually met on one of those Zoom calls, Camille Friend. She's been department head for Marvel Studios for quite a few years. You know, of course, we know uh, Black Panther, but they make all types of Marvel films and she's over all of them. And she is a phenomenal person. And when she spoke on one of those calls, she was just talking about the marketing opportunities that are available for salons, for hairstylists, for people in the beauty industry to like partner with them and kind of elevate where you are in terms of that. So she's someone that I hope to have as a guest soon and really hear more about what she's up to. But she also offers training for people who are interested in getting into film and television. Also, if we talk about visually impactful films, um, Charles Gregory did Andre Day's hair in the Billie Holiday film. But Sharon Davis and her work on Jingle Jangle, it just needs to also be recognized because it was phenomenal as well. And it's not to say that there haven't been other films, but that one just stood out because of the Victorian era and the way that they weave the cultural um, nod into the look. And it was beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. There's really so many. I think it's Stacy Cuts. I follow her on Instagram and she's been in that game for like 20 years, I think, or more than that from back in Kid and Playtime, I think was when she got her. So she was like part of that, you know, making that high top. <laughs> but she's been, you know, in that segment of the industry for quite a while. And she did a lot of the work, or I think she may have been the department head on the Eddie Murphy coming to America. As much as I point out all the bad wigs. I love to just take a moment to like, just acknowledge all the good stuff that's being done. Because when I see a bad wig, particularly on a Black actress or actor or person on screen, it's disturbing. I can't even pay attention to the dialogue. Yeah. That's the beauty of hair and makeup is that it puts you in the moment you know, whatever that period of time is and in the present with what they're talking about, you know, it's not meant to be like the big showcase. It's meant to be part of the scene. And years ago, I had a client who was in my chair because I was talking about that category in the Academy Awards. And she's like, I don't even know why they have that in the Academy Awards. And, you know, it's like, have you seen like your latest favorite folks in their mugshots, you know, when they get picked up for DWIs, <laughs> like that's what their hair looks like. <laughs> And it's like, if they don't have hair and makeup people, and it's like we went through quarantine lockdown last year, and we got to see some of our favorite folks without their glam squad, and we are very much needed, but it puts you right in that moment, whether you're watching like a James Brown or whatever the time period is, even here and now, you know, like you say, if the hair is off, it's like, that's all you're thinking about. You're not even paying attention to the movie. <laughs> Let's move on to our fast track questions. What was the first beauty product you ever tried? For some reason, I think it may be Revlon lipstick. And the only name that comes to mind is Cherries in the Snow. I don't know if that was the first one I tried. What's the latest product you tried? I have some Clinique skincare that I like. The Pep Start and there's a makeup remover that takes everything off that I really like and moisturizes. What's the beauty advice you live by or leave alone? Pretty much live by taking off my makeup every night. What do you leave alone? I guess a lot of trendy trends, things that aren't a good fit. 
What's the beauty trend you went all in on when you were young that makes you laugh now? I can't think of anything that was like a trend per se that I went all in. I mean, that makes me laugh anyway, some of the stuff I did do. Um, But in beauty school, I was doing color. I don't even know how often, but I was like, when I see the right color, then I'll know that it's the right color. And so I colored my hair like endlessly. (laughs) And I (laughs) don't recommend that to anyone. Who was your beauty icon when you were growing up and who deserves that status now? Ooh, the first part is super easy. Beverly Johnson. It's like I absolutely love seeing her on the covers of Seventeen and Glamour and then later on Vogue. And I still have a big scrapbook of all these images that I cut out of her. She was kind of the epitome of beauty. And who would you give that status to now? Right now, I would say really the people that I get to meet with every week. They're the people that really inspire me and that really in my mind, are setting the pace or setting the bar at some level of excellence all the time. Final question. If someone wanted to follow in your footsteps, what advice would you give them? One thing that comes to mind is cream rises to the top. And it's like when I was doing like platform artists and most people who are going to excel, you're going to have some times when people may be trying to hold you down or saying, who does she think she is kind of thing. And I think it's just about holding steady, about knowing who you are, that you are bringing your gifts forth and knowing it's like no one can stop cream from rising to the top. And also be ready to put in the work to master your craft. You've offered some great advice about what it takes to make it in beauty and gave an example of the ways in which you can live out your career. You could be a stylist, you can be a platform artist, you can be an educator, you can own a business and sell it and start another one. You're not wed to one way of using those skills. Yeah, the beauty industry offers so many different opportunities. And that was one of the things, you know, that my mom told me when I was thinking about going, she's like, even if you don't like hair, maybe you'll like makeup. Maybe you'll find that you like skin. There's so many different opportunities. Maybe you'll be a rep for a makeup line or something, not a makeup artist. So it offers a lot of different opportunities. So I hope people see the richness of the beauty industry and not just, oh, you have to do one thing. I can't thank you enough for being a guest on the show today. It's been really great chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me, Corinne. This has been wonderful. And it's like, I really applaud everything that you're doing. I've gotten so much out of the episodes I've listened to and just commend you and can't wait to even learn more about you. (laughs) Because I think it's so fascinating just to hear another perspective from the beauty and editorial space is a whole nother conversation. So yeah, it is. I look forward to that. And in the meantime, thanks again for being here. Thank you, Corinne. You have a great day. And thanks, everybody. That's our show for today. Remember that there's more than one way to the top. And the most important step is the first one. So start right here.